in Connecticut! Welcome to Arnie Geddon. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And we're here for this holiday season to talk to you about Christmas in Connecticut 1992. And I know it's probably been a while since you've seen this one. Since 1992. <laughs> Even then. Uh... <laughs> to be fair, you may have actually seen the 1945 version with Barbara Stranwyck. Which, to differentiate it from this version, that one played in theaters. <laughs> and it had less color. That is also true. That is also true. And this version, this 1992 one, was directed by Arnold Schwarzenegger. It is the only directorial credit for Schwarzenegger of a motion picture. That we're aware of. That we're aware of. There's a lot of secret ones he's got hidden away. Yeah, we don't want to know too much about those. <laughs> so, yes... This movie, Christmas in Connecticut, I am very curious. Tony, when we started this podcast, did you know this thing existed? I'm still not sure it exists. <laughs> okay, well, I was, because I do remember hearing somewhere, maybe an Entertainment Weekly magazine or something like that, back in the early 90s, mention of it. I never knew when it was on TV. I had zero access to ever watch it. Was it Christmas Magazine? <laughs> it's a local Connecticut publication. Possibly, possibly. Every every issue has a burning heart <laughs> on the cover. <laughs> I can never keep my issues straight, which one's which. It's published once a year. <laughs> At Christmas. <laughs> so anyways. So we're going to have a lot of fun today, folks. Yeah, so I mean, this movie, you know, was not accessible to me as, as a young person. Because honestly, in 92, I would have watched it. I would not have held anything against it as a TV movie. I knew Schwarzenegger directed it. I liked Schwarzenegger comedies at the time. I 100% would have watched this. Never saw it. You're a big Christmas fan? Big Christmas fan. I never take off my Santa suit. <laughs> at least not the top. <laughs> they got ripped off when I came down the chimney. It's not my fault. That's what you said at Easter. <laughs> yeah, by the way, you owe me a chimney cleaning. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> but seriously, uh, this movie was not accessible at the time, and when we went to do it for this podcast, it's not that easy to find. Like, there are copies on Amazon, but they're like 15 bucks, and who's going to pay that for this? Yeah, I mean, your price per view is getting pretty high for Christmas in Connecticut, 1992. Yeah, and shockingly, a version of it is not up on YouTube. Uh, no, we had to go to, I think it's the French site, Daily Motion. Right, or the Daily Motion. <laughs> La Motion chaque jour <laughs> par la Noël de Connecticut. That's right, but if you go to Daily Motion, you can actually find the movie. It's broken into three parts, and it's very watchable, so we did that. I think in the U.S. it's also on Amazon Prime. There's also, I think it's Voodoo that's owned by Walmart. I think you can access it uh, there as well. But here in Canada, we were kind of hooped. So Daily Motion it was. Yeah, and it was a pretty grainy, mirrored version. Uh, 
full of ads. I think we downloaded an ad blocker specifically to watch this movie. Right, yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure uh, all respects to the cast and crew of this film were probably stealing royalties out of their family's pockets by watching it on that service. We probably loaded my computer with viruses in the process of doing all this for this podcast. But hey, you go out there and download it and let us know what you think. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So yeah, this movie aired on the TNT Network on Monday, April 13th, 1992. That's a pretty puzzling date to air a Christmas movie, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it is. And I think it's interesting because we live in an era now where... Like, TV Christmas movies are big business on, like, Lifetime and Hallmark. Not in April. Not in April. So it's very curious that this wouldn't have been thrown onto some network, well, TNT, I guess, in this case, in, like, November or December. Like, why wouldn't they? Did they not have a single night free? And a lot of these shows wrap up, you know, early to mid-December. Did they have nothing in the days before Christmas? Well, who knows? I mean, that's one of the things we like to do here on Old Arnie Geddon, is we like to dig up a little bit of fun facts about the movie that we're watching. Yeah, this one, there's not a lot I can really tell you. Christmas in Connecticut, not only did we have trouble drumming up facts, we had trouble drumming up the movie itself. Right. But one thing I can tell you is the TV ratings for the night of April 13th, 1992. Yeah. Uh, The number one show in uh, North America, was Murphy Brown, with 21 million viewers. Hmm. Uh, Number two was The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Number three was Designing Women. Number four was Northern Exposure. And number five was Evening Shade. And as for the week, uh, the number one rated show of the entire week was Roseanne, which had like 30 million viewers. Can you imagine that now? Yeah, it's hard to believe. Yeah, number two was Home Improvement, and number three was 60 Minutes. I would guess because this played on the TNT network, the ratings were very, very low, and so I couldn't get them anywhere. I tried. I really tried. Also, it's a Christmas movie, and it was April. (laughs) Also true. Uh, And so I looked up also, what was the atmosphere like in uh, 1992 for TV movies? Well, we actually had some notable ones this year. Uh, A couple of them that I watched back in the day. We had To Grandmother's House We Go, starring the Olsen Twins. Did you ever see that? No, uh, I'm not a big Olsen Twins fan. This was during the Full House heyday, though, so I definitely watched this. And it was not good. Uh, The same year, we also had Gunsmoke to The Last Man. The Boys of St. Vincent, which was like a really critically acclaimed movie, TV movie, that aired that uh, year. And uh, I remember it won, I think, some Emmys and stuff like that. We also had Revenge of the Nerds 3, The Next Generation. Was that a made-for-TV movie? It was, and I watched it. I also watched Nerds 4, Nerds in Love, a couple years later. I've definitely seen both of those. I just assumed that they were released in theaters. They were not. And the other one that's super noteworthy is Saved by the Bell, Hawaiian style. I did see that one. It was wacky hijinks to the max. Yes, the max. (laughs) Like the restaurant they go to. (laughs) Yeah, I remember watching this one. I remember Dean Jones was in it. And I have probably seen this TV movie, the Saved by the Bell TV movie, I'm going to say minimum five times. (laughs) I was so big into Saved by the Bell at this era. I don't know, man. I'm getting a little bit worried. You were like 12 at this point. Yeah. That's too old to be that into Saved by the Bell. I was really into Saved by the Bell. (laughs) I remember I lost sleep when I saw the episode where Zach and Kelly broke up. (laughs) So 92 was a big year for you in TV movies. It really was. I apparently was watching a lot of bad TV. (laughs) But, you know, you wonder, how did Arnold Schwarzenegger 
direct this thing. We could not find any sort of quote as to why he chose to do this. He doesn't even mention it in his autobiography. It's not even in the index. He does not even mention directing. And it's so weird because in 1990 he directs an episode of the Tales from the Crypt TV series called The Switch. It's with uh, William Hickey and um, Kelly Preston. I'm sure we'll do it on this podcast at some point. For sure. Um, but sort of, that's sort of hit him putting his toe in the water. And then like a year and a half later, he directs this, this Christmas in Connecticut remake. And he does not talk at all about directing. It's very strange that I would imagine this took at least a chunk of his time. And yet he has nothing. Yeah, it's kind of strange. You got to wonder. I mean, obviously directing didn't take. Maybe he didn't like it. Maybe. So maybe he just feels like it's not worth mentioning in his you know, litany of other successes. You know, when you're a champion bodybuilder and the biggest movie star in the world and a top politician and you're writing your autobiography, maybe you decide to leave off your middling made-for-TV Christmas movie that was released in April on TNT. Do you think he was a big fan of the original from 1945, maybe? I, I wouldn't want to hazard a guess. Can you imagine Arnold Schwarzenegger sitting around watching... Christmas in Connecticut over and over again, the 1945 version? I mean, it's really good, but no. It's also not a particularly well-remembered movie either. Mm -hmm. Like, I can see Arnold watching It's a Wonderful Life, for example, because I think that would get a lot of television play when he's, you know, a younger man. I don't think Christmas in Connecticut was getting played that much. I just don't think it, you know, caught on as a perennial favorite the way that some of the others did, like Miracle on 34th Street or something. Yeah, I don't imagine uh, Christmas in Connecticut 1945 was burning up the Austrian airwaves. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows, maybe it was. But, you know, let's get into Christmas in Connecticut 1992. We hope some of you out there were able to watch it. And if you haven't, we do recommend, you know, as you always say with spoilers, that you try to watch it. If you go to Daily Motion or for if you're in the U.S., use one of your streaming networks that we don't have to, you know, receive this great holiday gift. Yeah, it, it is the, the holly jolly season right now, or at least it is at the time that we're releasing this podcast. I don't know. That's the nature of the medium. So if you're downloading this in April, it may no longer be seasonally appropriate. But... Although that's when the movie aired. <laughs> Are they celebrating the anniversary of this movie? Yeah, but nevertheless, go out, try and find it, because um, as much as a movie like this can be ruined, we're going to spoil the hell out of it. Right. Okay, so Tony, what is this movie about? Well, I'm glad you asked, Cameron. <laughs> Are you? Yes, this is about a uh, a top food, I guess the Food Network star, whatever the equivalent of the Food Network was back then. Or was it like a local cable access show? I, I think it was a cable access show because they're talking about getting onto the major networks. Whatever it was, it was a very well-regarded cooking show, uh, which was hosted by Elizabeth Blaine. Played by Diane Cannon, uh, and the big secret that Elizabeth Blaine has is that huh, she actually can't cook. Uh, along this time that they're really looking for the limelight, uh, there's a rescue of a young child from a snowstorm by Colorado Ranger uh, Jefferson Jones, played by Chris Christopherson. Do you think that's a play on the name Jeremiah Johnson? Um, like so much I feel like we're going to have on the show... I won't hazard a guess on that either. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Elizabeth Blaine's producer, Alexander Yardley, played by Tony Curtis, decides, what a great opportunity. We are going to 
show Elizabeth Blaine's fake life in Connecticut, and we're going to have Jefferson Jones on that show as an inexplicably <laughs> live guest on live television. That is a weird crossover promotion. To bring a guy who saved a young child from, like, a skiing accident onto your cooking show. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like Alexander Yardley, the producer character, doesn't really have the best business sense because <laughs> uh, he's also talking about this is going to lead to movies, this is going to lead to uh, prime time, but it is a cooking show there, Alex. Yeah, yeah, it's very strange. But yeah, so they have to put on this whole farce creating this fake family unit. She brings in her assistant whose uh, uh, boyfriend or husband is an actor and they have a kid that comes in from a, a friend of theirs and it's basically the idea of them having to put on this phony act of being a family while Chris Christopherson's character joins them and he's unknowing of what's going on and they have to hold this act together and get it before a camera. Oh, she had that Tony Curtis, the producer guy, is also playing her husband. Yeah. Who has an unrequited love for her and I guess is, feels as something like a failed actor himself or something like that. We have to say, Alexander Yardley is a walking Me Too case. <laughs> <laughs> this character is, oh my god, would he be fired and destroyed in a second nowadays. Yeah, I guess they're playing it for yucks here, but... Yeah. Uh... <laughs> 1992. <laughs> we, can, we can get into that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, like it's interesting because in the original, the way it's set up is that... Uh, in that one, she's a columnist who writes for a newspaper, and she's basically put on this act, but she's an incredibly good writer, and her editor knows that it's all a sham, but the publisher doesn't. And the publisher creates this publicity stunt because there's been a soldier in World War II who was stranded up from his ship, and he was like on the sea for like six days, and he was starving. And when they found him, they're slowly feed, you know, getting him back to health, but he couldn't eat you know, properly for quite a while. He was on liquids. And he basically got himself back into mental state by reading her columns and kind of imagining home-cooked meals and that sort of, like, comforting sense of home. And so when he gets home, they decide to send the war hero to this woman's house, and it's the publisher's idea, who has no idea that this woman cannot cook at all. She's like a city girl, and they have to create this elaborate ruse so she can protect her job and all of that. And it's hilarious. And, like, Barbara Stanwyck is, like top a level performance like just carrying this movie it's a real comedic showcase and it's incredibly funny and uh it's interesting that this 1945 comedy that in theory should be really outdated holds together much better than this 1992 tv movie oh come on now are you saying that diane cannon can't carry a a motion picture like barbara stanwick can well this movie a tv movie like this no <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what I'm what I'm getting at here is that um, it's actually surprising here, and maybe it was because Schwarzenegger was attached, but there's a lot of really great talent in this movie. Yeah. Um, Diane Cannon, she's been nominated for, I think, two or three Academy Awards. She might have yeah. even have won one yeah. at one point. And, and, you know, she was in the movie Heaven Can Wait. Uh, yeah, and, you know, a baker's dozen of Golden Globe nominations. Yeah. Uh, Chris Christopherson, say what you will about his acting. I loved him in Blade. Um, <laughs> a Star is Born with Barbara Streisand. <laughs> but, I mean, he's he's uh, got some experience there. Tony Curtis, who's a, you know, at least was a big shot um, maybe before 1992. His star was fading a little bit at this point. Sure, I mean, yeah, he's in Spartacus, The Defiant Ones. He's great. 
Yeah, and then um, Richard Roundtree, and there's a few other people. Uh, it was funny to see Jimmy Workman in there as the as the kid, probably best known as Pugsley from the Adams Family. Yeah, from the movies. Yeah, the yeah. first two movies, and he was actually nominated for an award for this movie. He was nominated for the Young Artist Awards, uh, Best Young Actor in a Cable Movie. You're kidding me. I am 100% serious. Wow. Well, there you go. Good work, Jimmy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I guess he did throw up in a Christmas tree. <laughs> that's also true. That's what got him the award. That's what clinched it. <laughs> this movie was also nominated for a Cable Ace Award for Best Original Song for the closing credit song, Cooking for Two, by Mitch Albom. So make of that what you will. I had no idea that was an original song. I thought that was just something that they kind of uh, picked up off the ASCAP waivers and, uh, yeah. you know, mailed the $20 in uh, royalties in and called it a day. <laughs> it's funny, though. This movie, um, this movie was written by Janet Brownwell, who wrote quite a few TV movies. But I really thought it was interesting because this one, obviously, as you said, is pretty studded with stars. Like, there's big name actors in this movie for some inexplicable reason. But, like, she also wrote the Amy Fisher story, uh, which starred Drew Barrymore. She also wrote Backfield in Motion. Do you remember this one? It was a football TV movie starring Roseanne Barr and Tom Arnold. No, I, I don't think I've ever heard of this. I remember commercials for it. So, like, she definitely was used to writing TV movies for actually pretty significant actors. Mm -hmm. Another one just I want to note is uh, a couple years ago she wrote 12 Dates of Christmas. So she did return to her holiday roots further oh, down the oh, road. that's good to know. Yeah, I thought that was a nice. That's a Christmas spirit story for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and a couple other interesting Arnold uh, connections before we dive into the movie. The music for this movie was composed by Charles Fox, who would go on to score the Conan the Barbarian TV series. Oh, that's a good. That's a nice connection there, Cam. Yes, and also the cinematographer was Chuck Caldwell, who worked in the camera department on the original Terminator. Ooh, so all of you. Uh... TV, movie, cinematography fans out there, you now know something more than you did before. That's right. So, Tony, what did you think of this movie? I kind of enjoyed it more than I thought I would, Cam. I mean, it's it's a total piece of crap, <laughs> uh, but I, I enjoyed it. I mean, you and I were sitting there and we were laughing through it, uh, maybe improperly at, at parts, but we've watched some TV movies on here before, notably uh, the Jane Mansfield story, one of Schwarzenegger's earlier films. And then more recently, see uh, Arnold Run, which was uh, the time-traveling hocus-pocus about his uh, rise to bodybuilding superstardom. And political fame. Yeah, which was horrible. It's one of the worst things I've ever watched. <laughs> yeah, it's horrible. Like, it was unbearable. I think we were probably kinder even than we should have been in that episode, and I was not kind. Yeah, so this one's got, it's definitely got that gee whiz TV movie kind of feel to it. Uh, there's nothing at all to really <laughs> distinguish it, except for maybe some ways in which it should not be distinguished. But on the whole, you know, it's, I'm not sad I watched it, but I will be sad if I have to watch it again. <laughs> How's that for a review? Yeah, you know what? I can't say I went into this one with uh, a lot of anticipation, because... I hated, hated, hated see Arnold run, and uh, the Jane Mansfield story was pretty bad. Like, it was not painful to watch, but it was so, so superficial. It just slid right out of your brain the second you watched it. What was it? Who was that movie about again? I think it was Jane Mansfield, wasn't it? Yeah, i never seen it. Yeah. <laughs> but this one, I think we laughed more in this movie 
than any of the Arnold comedies we've covered. Well, certainly more than Twins. <laughs> like, we were howling. We had, like, tears streaming down our face. Not for the reasons the movie intended, but we were laughing. Like, this thing is... I mean, it's really bad, but <laughs> it's really, really bad. Like, it's like kind of cloying and cutesy, but it has so many horrible performances <laughs> that we just were, like, dying of laughter. Horrible performances by great actors. And I think there's something... Uh... There's something worse about having very notable actors give really bad performances that that makes it almost entertaining. And lots of scenes where Arnold would hold the camera on an actor, a great actor, and just have the mug to the camera for like 20 seconds. Well, I think you're referring specifically to Tony Curtis. I was actually referring to Chris Christopherson. <laughs> well, they both of them did a lot of mugging. <laughs> if they mugged anymore, you could have drank coffee out of them. There's a scene where Chris Christopherson shows up at uh, Elizabeth Blaine's fake house. And he comes in and she's like bent over picking something off, uh, up off the floor. And it's him staring at her derriere. And it's just a close-up of his face as he's like... Mm. Yeah, literally mm. breathing through his mouth. Yeah, and then uh, switching back and forth between uh, his mouth breathing mug <laughs> and uh, and her butt. Yeah, and you might as well just had like steam coming out of his ears and him going, "Oh god!" <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's insane, and like the movie's full of moments like that that made it really, really funny. Yeah, I mean Tony Curtis. Every scene that he has, he acts as if he's just coming through a pair of double doors, like waving his hands in the air and just saying things needlessly emphatically, just just to get a point across. It's a deranged performance. <laughs> he's doing jazz hands in almost every single scene. And, and, and he, he sounds like the Mad Hatter from yeah, Alice in Wonderland. Edwin, yeah. So there's lots of scenes of him just running around being like, I don't know what we have to do. <laughs> and it's like, what is going on? And he's, he's, he'll just be talking about things that, you know, really aren't that exciting. But it's snowing outside. <laughs> and sorry, you can't see it at home, but I'm jazz handing it up when I yeah, say that. Yeah, um, I'm sure that will be lost on the home audience. Uh and probably our, we've probably overclocked our mic doing that impression, but uh, it's really something to see. It is, and I mean, honestly, a lot of the entertainment value came from us doing that impersonation back and forth to each other yeah. throughout the rest of the movie. I was worried I wasn't going to be able to do the podcast. My throat was a little raw <laughs> by the time the credits rolled. But it is an insane performance, and I think the movie is like infinitely more watchable because Tony Curtis is out of his mind in this movie. Yeah, I kind of wish it had been Tony Curtis and not Jurgen Prochnow and C. Arnold Run. <laughs> I want to be a famous bodybuilder. <laughs> I'm going to go into politics. <laughs> and, now, <laughs> and for those of you who are, who are still listening after those um, you know, much-desired impressions of Tony Curtis, uh, it's also put in the context of just... If you can think of like a TV movie gag or a TV movie set piece that... Uh, it's kind of insufferably eye-rolling. Yeah. You know, it's in this movie. Oh, yeah. Like, we are not recommending this movie on the basis of it being good. Yeah. If you want wacky hijinks... Yeah. Um, you know, what What wacky comedic TV Christmas movie would be complete without the tree falling over at some point? A kid puking on the tree. Yeah, someone yeah. eating cookies that they shouldn't. 
Yeah, yeah. All that's a flower vase. A snowball fight. Uh, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, it's a sleigh ride. <laughs> yeah, it does have a sleigh ride. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's 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 like a um. All it needed was a gassy reindeer. <laughs> yeah, it's like a cliched checklist. It really is. I mean, it does. I'm sure hit all the beats that are in. Like, how many Christmas movies do they make a year now? It's it's an insane number. It's something like fifty or sixty. They make for the Hallmark and Lifetime channels. Maybe that's why they released this in April. <laughs> Just to distinguish it. Maybe. It was a crowded Christmas season. But I feel like this one's a little ahead of the curve before the huge stampede of these types of movies. But I mean, like, what? I'm just curious. What did you think of the actual story of this movie? Like, do you think it was functional or did it just all kind of just be a, a moth-eaten tapestry to hang these shreds of scenes well it was pretty stupid yeah right like it, it was it wasn't horrible in that you i mean you could follow what was going on okay they they want to make it big with this cooking show um why they thought it would be a good idea to have uh, a live performance of a cooking show with someone hosted by someone who can't cook yeah uh, and all co-hosted by someone who had never been on television before except <laughs> Saving, except the news <laughs> yeah except the news and had yeah. otherwise been living in a colorado cabin for 11 years yeah uh so pretty unbelievable stuff but i mean it was almost as believable as the fact that this woman is a host of a cooking show that seems to be on a cable network or like a basic cable network but her apartment in manhattan is like built for millionaires yeah i mean that's the new york effect in movies right? yeah. everybody in the movies who lives in new york lives in a uh multi-level penthouse suite yeah but i mean the plot is interesting because i actually think the plot works really well in the original because there's like a real air of desperation about it like they have to put on this con to save her job like she is going to lose this job if she's discovered so like you get why they're going through this whole charade throughout the movie and you know all the sequences where it almost gets spoiled and all that like there's real tension to it and a lot of great comedy I think that type of comedy depends on very precise timing and uh, like precision clockwork plotting, and like this movie has none of that. Uh, good writing helps too. Good writing helps. Uh, dialogue that's funny helps. Like how many times did Chris Christopherson have a line that was something like, "Yes." <laughs> My favorite was, "I saw a little Christmas tree, it reminded me of you," because <laughs> it was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, and that's the kind of... I love you, tree face. <laughs> I want to put a star on top of your head. Um, that's the kind of crap that we had to sit through in this movie. <laughs> yeah. That and close-ups of Tony Curtis's feet. Yeah, there was a few of those. Uh, I mean, Tony Curtis... Uh, There's the... something wrong with his feet. <laughs> <laughs> Not only are his feet kind of weird looking, but he also makes a really weird reference to uh, pleasuring a woman by sucking on her toes and then neighing like a horse. Yeah, yeah, it's really weird. This character is a train wreck. Yeah, and he he provides a lot of the kind of wacky comedy that you would expect in this kind of a made-for-TV movie. Yeah, that... well, like, there's scenes, okay, so, like, um, where it's they're big, like, comedic moments. And generally, you know, in a comedy, you would see how, like, say, in a, in a situation where everything's going wrong, 
one thing builds from another to another to another, so it kind of builds, right, to like a crescendo. There's a little bit of desperation in the air. Sure. In this movie, everything just starts going to hell at once. <laughs> Characters run around and fall down. Other ones, like, run through a window. It's like, what is going on? It's just like chaos happening in one shot. It's very strange. For, for almost the entire movie. Yeah. And there's a scene, though, that I'm thinking of Tony Curtis, where he, like, suddenly out of nowhere just, like, falls on the ground. And it's like this big, bad pratfall. And it's like, what is going on? It's so strange. It's like, let's just put it this way. I think we can say this pretty factually. Arnold Schwarzenegger, not a good comedy director. No, and what I'll say as well is uh, Chris Christopherson, uh, maybe not the best rough and ready romantic lead. Yeah, you you say romantic, and that's really interesting because obviously in this situation, uh, Elizabeth Blaine is pretending she's married to Tony Curtis's character. So, as far as the Christopherson character knows, these two are a married couple. Now, in the original, they very much do play up sort of a flirtationship between um, the lead character and the the war hero, played by Dennis Morgan. But he's very respectful. He's like, oh, they're married, you know, like, this is kind of awkward, I don't really know what to do. And, like, a lot of the comedy comes from, like, uh, Barbara Sandwick's character is just, like, drooling and, like, gaga-eyed over this guy. And still having to remind herself that she's supposed to be this, you know, this fake wife. Right. And, like, that's a big part of the comedy throughout the movie. In this one, it's barely acknowledged really at all, except for Tony Curtis acting like a pervert. Yeah, and Diane Cannon doing everything she can to get away from him. Yes. Uh, Like, forcibly telling him over and over and over again, no, we're not sleeping in the same bed. Yeah, and Chris Christopherson's character is, like... Totally just hitting on her and like, yeah, yeah, this seems normal. Yeah, my favorite move, and I'm, I'm going to maybe see how this one works on the ladies in my life. Sure. Uh, which is where he's like, what's that smell? And, yeah. uh And she's like, oh, it's, it's, my Chanel, it's my Chanel number five. Right. And he walks up to her uh, basically with, you know, three inches of space between them and grabs like tree sap and proceeds to rub it on her neck and say... <laughs> It's cedar. Yeah. Like, ooh, man. All, all, the, all the, lady, the ladies out there, their hearts were beating a little bit faster at that move, weren't they? Let's just put it this way. Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think we can say factually, not a good director of erotica. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> the fact that you're classifying Christmas in Connecticut as erotica... <laughs> Gives, I'm, I'm talking gives, about that specific scene. It gives me some concerns, Cam. <laughs> but I mean, we're also uh, tiptoeing around the fact that that scene that you're talking about in question features the second greatest uh, log chopping scene probably in the Arnold Schwarzenegger canon. Uh, yeah, I thought a direct reference to it actually. Although, um, man, I want to get logs like that because these are logs that when you... When Chris Christopherson, who's played as this mountain tough guy, yeah, uh, they establish him early on in the movie. He's doing like dips on a couple of chairs, and, and then he's pre- like moaning throughout. Yeah, and then he proceeds to do like four chin ups before <laughs> getting clearly tired. Uh, and he, anyways, he's chopping wood here, and these logs just explode in <laughs> random directions, like <laughs> like they're clearly pre chopped. Yeah, 
Well, I mean, it's really there just to build up the fact that he can swing an axe because later we get a montage of them trying to chop down a Christmas tree. Yeah, and it's, it, the, there's a lot of musical montages in this movie. Yeah. And I don't think there's a single one that's not in, like insufferably sickly sweet. Yeah, and they're like really badly staged. Like that axe swinging one where they're swinging at this tree is so poorly done. Like this woman looks like an idiot. Yeah, they both look pretty They both stupid. look terrible. But like it's she's supposed to be, you know, cutting down a tree and she's like swinging wildly in the air it's like so stupid well you think about the three or four uh, i guess it's probably four uh, romance flirtation scenes in this movie and those consist of uh wildly swinging an axe yep um pushing someone while they're trying to shoot a goose with a shotgun right stealing a horse-drawn sleigh from some townspeople yeah after they've just come from a like a uh, square dance that goes on for 47 minutes. And I was going to say an overlong square dance. Yeah, it's, it takes forever, yeah. yeah. Followed by a slow dance, the inevitable slow dance. Yes, and like none of these set pieces work. There's another one too, a mini one where it's like a hallway, where it's a door slamming farce, where characters are coming in and out of, do- of bedrooms. And there's like, it's one of those classic gags where doors are opening and closing, and everyone's looking for someone, but when they come out, the doors are closed. It doesn't work at all because yeah. uh, only two of the doors are really in the frame, and they, <laughs> it's just it's like a poorly framed shot. Clearly, they didn't have enough room in the hallway. Yeah, and uh, you don't really. Care. Tony Curtis comes out not wearing pants at one point. <laughs> it's really weird. I can relate with my Santa costume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know you can. But um, yeah, there's also like a couple sequences they rip out of the original movie. Uh, they're presented in a different context. But, like, one of them is Diane Cannon and Christopherson bathing a baby. Now, in the original movie, the whole joke is that the Elizabeth Blaine character doesn't like children and has basically never, like, held a baby in her life. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the joke is her trying to pawn it off on the male lead and, like, her discomfort in this situation and just being completely inept. But in this scene, it's just like the two of them just very competently bathing a baby. <laughs> well, she uses a bit too much shampoo. Sure. But, like, it's not played for real laughs of her being, like, inept. It's kind of weird. Yeah, if anything, it's played to show that Chris Christopherson, despite being a mountain man, is actually sweet. A little bit later in the movie, he says that he was also like the head of his department of comparative literature at the University of Chicago. Yeah. Where he found time to live in a mountain cabin for 11 years and become a a forest ranger while also, I guess, obtaining a PhD and getting tenure at a university. Yeah. Uh, I mean... Who knows? It's a it's a big question here. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. And there's another sequence that really didn't make that much sense to me in the original movie, where all the characters desperately, desperately want to see Elizabeth Blaine flip a flapjack in a like in a you know by throwing it in the air and catching it in a frying pan. And like in that movie, I'm watching these characters obsess over this, and everyone must see this. It's kind of like the climax of the movie, really. And in my head, I'm going, well, I guess this was a thing in 1945. People must have been really bored. And then it's replicated here, where all the characters are equally overjoyed to see Diane Cannon flip a flapjack. I don't know if I've ever seen someone ever properly flip a flapjack. Have you? Maybe. It's not something that ever would have stuck in my mind, though. You know what I'm going to do this Christmas? Flip a flapjack? No, I'm going to find someone who can flip a flapjack, (laughs) and I'm going to watch them. Okay, I only know how to make waffles. (laughs) But I mean, it's just a weird scene, and I don't really know what I got out of it, other than like a hilarious 
a reaction shot of Chris Christopherson looking like a child on Christmas morning watching this woman flip a flapjack. <laughs> well, it of course paid off dividends later in the movie, in the in the climax of the movie, where we get Richard Roundtree, who's playing the network head. Yeah. He uh, shows up while they're doing this live screening. Unfortunately, Diane Cannon's assistant is nowhere to be found. She's gone out looking for uh, Diane Cannon and Chris Christopherson in their covered-in-fake-snow Volkswagen bus and has crashed. Yeah, because the two of them had disappeared on a sleigh ride. <laughs> yes, the aforementioned stolen sleigh. Yeah. Uh, so she's gone. None of the food is cooked. Uh, it's a big disaster. She gets there five minutes before the production. Uh, all the lines are wrong. The kid is throwing up in the tree. <laughs> what a comedy of errors. Or at least something of errors. Here's what I don't get. I have so many questions. This is a live broadcast. This woman's career hinges on this broadcast, as well as the career of Tony Curtis's character. The network exec, uh, played by uh, Richard Browntree, knows, like, nothing. He thinks that Elizabeth Blaine is married with a family. He's completely <laughs> oblivious to all this. So, a couple things. Number one, this scenario that they are going to air on this guy's network, a primetime special, in which Tony Curtis is playing her husband on the show, why would this ever work? The network exec would see and be like, that's not her husband. Like, no part of this makes any sense. Why broadcast their deception to the man paying for their deception? Well, I guess that's just, it's easier to ask forgiveness, Cam, than, than to beg permission. I guess. And come to think of it, too, her assistant is playing her daughter. Boy, she, she better hope this guy's never come to the set and seen her assistant. Yeah, I guess that's probably true. Yeah. I, there are some holes in this in this plot. There are, but also this whole charade they're putting on is so complicated and labyrinthine in its construction. Why would you do this live? Why wouldn't you just tape this? Because that way you can account for all the errors that could happen, and in this case, it's all errors. Yeah, in fact, they rehearse and rehearse and rehearse for uh, seemingly days anyways going into it yeah and tony curtis's character even says uh you know in order to get the right level of spontaneity you have to rehearse it over and over again right yeah it's like the david fincher approach yeah so uh, it didn't make any sense to me why not just tape it and play it i don't know like there's no good reason because especially in this sort of scenario all the food has to be cooked properly and all that why would you leave that to chance on a live broadcast, which they do, and the food is not ready. So then what? Yeah, with a woman who can't cook. Yeah, like, in what world did they think this was a good idea? Uh, well, in Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess Tony Curtis's character just thought this was a genius idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess Diane Cannon's character, uh, Elizabeth Blaine, I mean, she kind of went along for the ride. She was, uh, they established early on in the movie that she needs the money. She's, I guess, addicted to... Shopping for porcelain figurines is literally a plot point in this film. I think I think that might be a, a reference to the original movie. In the original movie, um, at the house that they're using to stage their fake family act at, there is this really ugly porcelain statue on a, on a table that Barbara Stanwyck keeps picking up and being close to throwing or smashing. And she does it like three or four times and it does get smashed at the end, of course. I think that that's what this was referencing. I think. It, it may it may have been. It may have been a misguided throwback. 
But anyways, as expected in these types of movies, everything goes horribly awry. The um, the hapless production assistant is having a conniption and yelling very rudely at all of his staff, who he yeah. apparently works quite closely with. Yeah, are you talking about the, the director, the crazed director? Yeah, I guess, sorry, director, not, yeah. not production assistant. And he's played by David Arnett, who's an actor, he's popped up in some things, but most notably, he was a writer on Last Action Hero. Yeah, so I guess him and Arnold hit it off on this film, maybe? I guess. You never know. But anyways, they, you know, instead of a, a fun cooking show, they decide that they're going to show the real Elizabeth Blaine. And what that is, is she says, first of all, she tries to make flapjacks. That's not very successful. Yeah. None of the food is ready. You end up being able to see the boom mics and the cue cards and everything else on this show. Uh, this Jefferson Jones character is lost misresponding to lines i mean he's not an actor who would have thought yeah and uh you know they end up showing all the cast and crew and but it's like it's a complete disaster and i don't think arnold schwarzenegger seems to understand how uh live tv works in terms of staging i actually worked in live tv for like five years there's nothing about this that makes any sense you have like the tony curtis character just like walking in from offset right in front of the camera blocking everything in its path like, this is incompetent on every conceivable level, even for, like, basic community programming. Yeah, I actually really enjoyed, uh, more than the movie, I really enjoyed your reaction to this live uh, live filming, because you were just saying, everything, everyone would be fired. No one on that show would yeah. ever work again. Yeah, like, the, the network would probably just pull it. They would just pull it completely off well, the air. Well, I guess ultimately they did, sure. j- just as uh, Elizabeth and Jefferson share their on-screen kiss. My guess is, in real life, it doesn't make it more than, like, 15 minutes. Yeah, but what I, I agree with you. But what I will say is, I think that was the best part of the movie, because that was a show that I actually wanted to watch. That's true. I mean, it was a horror show that was fascinating to watch. Like, it was, we were genuinely laughing, and it was chaotic and ridiculous. I would love to tune in to a holiday Christmas cooking special. Yeah. And just have the tree fall over, and the goose not be cooked. Sure. And a kid throwing up in a tree. Someone playing one song while Silent Night is supposed to be playing. Yeah. uh, And people walking in front of the camera. I mean... That's kind of why I would watch live TV to begin with. It's just to just to see the world burn ever so little. I love how, too, the uh, Elizabeth Blaine character keeps commenting on people that an audience would have no idea who they are. <laughs> yeah, they're, I think once her assistant comes in, the person who's actually doing the cooking, uh, who was playing her daughter, I believe. Yeah. Uh, she grabs her uh, and turns to the camera like, this isn't actually my daughter. Yeah. This is my assistant who does all the real cooking. Yeah. And, uh, but that was the first time the audience had seen her. They would have no idea who this person was. Right. And they would never assume that was her daughter. Yeah. Anyways, uh, you know, they, they pull it and, you know, cut to, I guess, a month or two later or a week or two later. Who knows? It's not really established. Where uh, Jefferson and Elizabeth are sitting in her fancy New York apartment. Uh, she has just read a recipe for I, i'm assuming for the first time in her life and she says some comment like it's amazing how easy it is to cook when you read a recipe right um okay great character arc there guys yeah and uh and lo and behold who should knock at the door well but uh tony curtis and richard roundtree her producer and the network exec who want her back and it's hard to believe isn't it 
in a movie like this, but that disastrous live airing where things were literally catching on fire and in which she revealed to her studio audience that she'd been lying to them for two decades and couldn't actually cook and her family was fake. Right. Turns out it was the biggest success in television history. Yeah. And they want her back and they're willing to pay her way more money to feed this porcelain figurine habit. Yes. And I mean, we all saw it coming. And, you know, she's... What? Lived, she lives happily ever after with Chris Christopherson, you know, who... She's going to go back and help him rebuild his cabin because we should say his cabin burnt down when he saved the child. And the only thing that remained in the cabin was a cookbook of hers that he'd gotten as a gift and never really looked at. That's right. And so they assume he's a big fan. I don't know. This movie. This movie. A um, couple things I want to comment on. The character of um, Tyler, played by Gene Lithgow, no relation to John Lithgow that I can tell. Uh, different spelling. But... um. He plays the son-in-law in this family. I hated this character. He's an actor, like a really obnoxious actor. And he's in, you know, method acting mode of like a psychopath. And he just behaves like an idiot the entire movie. I really hated this character. Yeah, there's. it's hard to squeeze comedy out of, uh, you know, threatening a baby. Yeah, it's kind of weird. And there's a whole subplot where Tony Curtis thinks he's going to sell the baby. Yeah, he listens to him auditioning, and uh, he's talking to this baby in a very menacing tone of voice. And the baby, what I'll say, is on screen is actually crying. Yeah. Uh, which I was like, okay. <laughs> Hard to believe that, uh, you know, probably this total stranger talking to the baby, going like, I'm going to kill you, kid. Yeah. Would make a baby cry. Yeah. And then we get all these terrible reaction shots of Tony Curtis being like, Oh me! Oh my! <laughs> it's really stupid. Which, and that never goes anywhere. Nope, nope. Like, that, that plot is literally never resolved. Nope. And so, like, yeah, that character I just found incredibly grating. He, yeah, he was pretty aggravating. Yeah, I mean, he's probably the worst character in the movie. Because the other ones you can say they don't work <laughs> on, a real, on any real level. But at least they're fun in, like, a train wreck way. Whereas, like, I just found this character annoying. And there was, like, manufactured drama where he was breaking up with the assistant and they have to get the two of them back together. It's like, I don't care. There was a lot of unnecessary plot diversions. And it's a 90-minute movie, so it's not long. They really did shoehorn in a lot of, like, really treacly, like, dramatic problems. That Like, the original, they kept that movie flying through comedy. Like, like you know, bam, 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 comedy hits. And, like, this movie is all just like, uh, uh, we can't really do the comedy, so just keep introducing really lame, dramatic beats. Yeah, let's let's add a failing romance for two minor characters that you care about even less yeah. than the main characters. This movie also has one of the cliches that drive me nuts, where, like, everyone's yelling, and then a character whistles really loudly and everyone stops. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. If this, If you're not into shouty movies, this is not the movie for you. This is one of those movies... Um, that had that kind of 80s feel to it, even though this was 92, where directors uh, thought that it would be funny just to have everybody shouting different things at the same time, like everybody blaming somebody else so you, so you can't make out all, any of the words. Yeah. And then, you know, and then a whistle would come in. Yeah. That sort of thing. I, I find that kind of thing pretty aggravating. It's movies. really dumb. Uh, but just getting back to the Tyler character for a second and his acting... This movie also has some bad impressions going for it because we get to see Tyler, uh, let's get to the lamer one first, um, recreating the famous De Niro taxi driver, Are You Talking to Me bit. And it's the epitome of lame. 
it, it's pretty bad. It, it's it's the kind of impression that your a half cut uncle would do at Christmas dinner. Yeah, yeah, it's really really bad. Yeah, it's <laughs> cringeworthy. And what's the other one, Tony? Uh, well, actually, it's funny. I don't actually know if that was an impression. Yep. And if it was, it was a hell of an impression. It could have been a sound bite, though, actually, too. I think it was dubbing. You think so? I think so. Um, where uh, he comes in, he's he's this method actor. He's training to be a psychopath or pretending to be a psychopath. He's wearing, like, a leather jacket. Wearing a leather jacket. And he steals the sunglasses off of Tony Curtis's head and puts them on. And as he's going up the stairs, he turns and says... I'll be back. Yeah. And we both just kind of looked at each other. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, it would be almost a shame to not have a little Schwarzeneggerism uh, in a Schwarzenegger-directed movie. Because there's not that much else to really redeem this film, especially for our purposes sure. on Arnie Geddon. Although, Arnold Schwarzenegger does have a cameo in this movie. Yeah, like a Sven Oli Thorsen-level cameo. Yes. He's just basically sitting at a table outside of a news truck. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what he was doing. He was talking on a cell phone. You can't hear his voice in the audio mix, but, like, it's not that clear. Yeah. Which is really lame. Like, why wouldn't Arnold give himself a little more of a cameo? Like, wouldn't that be fun? It's not like this thing has artistic <laughs> integrity, so, like, why not have, <laughs> like, a fun little, you know, one-note moment, maybe where he's on her cooking show or something in the intro? Yeah, I know what you mean. It, you know, you think... I mean, he's there on set anyways. Couldn't he play maybe something different from what he normally plays? I mean, this was in his T2 Last Action Hero uh, like action heyday where he was playing big action characters. Yeah. And so, you know, you could have him playing, you know, either a parody of that maybe briefly or playing like a weaker character, some um some grunt who has to get coffee on set or something That'd like that. That'd be funny, yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? Or even we have the big barn dance sequence. Why not have him as one of the musicians in the band? Well, we have seen him sing uh, country in, in yeah. Killing Gunther, and we know that it's pretty funny. Yeah, like, Arnold's done a lot of cameos in his time, and we're going to do an episode on those cameos, but, I mean, this one's pretty lame. Yeah, he's just there, and if you're not looking for it, and we were looking for it the same way we like to look for Sven. Sure. Uh, if, if you're not looking for it, you'll miss it. Yeah, and it's too bad Sven wasn't in this movie. I would have loved to have seen Sven in this movie. Who does he play? I gotta believe he's maybe playing one of the cops or something like that. Okay. I can't see him as a main character. One of the cops that arrests them during the sleigh ride? Yeah, exactly. And says, come on, you foreheads? What a weird line that was. What was that? Have you ever heard anyone call someone else foreheads? Like, as in, like, calling a group of people foreheads? No, I haven't. It's weird. I don't know where that line came from. If any of you are out there listening in Connecticut, can you just let us know? Is this like a regionalism or something? Yeah, we're Canadians. We're really ignorant to these things. Eh? <laughs> Don't you know? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, all in all, this is a really bad movie. But like, it's just filled with so many weird moments. Like, I referenced it earlier when the Chris Christopherson character is working out off the, you know, the opening credits. Yeah. And he's, like, moaning. It sounds like a love scene. I think it's supposed to be interpreted as one until we see what's actually going on, I think. I don't know. I just, I mean, as soon as that opening scene came on, I was just like, oh, yeah, this is clearly an Arnold Schwarzenegger-directed <laughs> film. But then, like, there's another scene where uh, Diane Cannon is eating, like, a McDonald's hamburger. And just, like, this poor actress has to sit there and just make moaning sounds while she eats the hamburger. And it goes on forever. Yeah. 
And they have multiple scenes of characters just like making moaning sounds doing things. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah, got me. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe there's a subgenre of movies where people moan that this is a, supposed to be really appealing to. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, um, I don't know. Who do you think was the best performance in the movie? I'd probably say Diane Cannon. I mean, yeah. she she had a pretty thankless job with it. She had a bunch of crap to say yeah. and and didn't do too bad. Uh I mean, Chris Christopherson was pretty bad. Yeah. Uh Tony Curtis was unhinged. Uh <laughs> needlessly unhinged. <laughs> um and then it's uh, a roller coaster ride with Tony Curtis. Yeah, and then I mean Richard Roundtree was pretty much just cashing a check. Yeah, he was pretty bad. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess we have to maybe, uh, acknowledge Jimmy Workman, who did win the, uh, Young Artists Award. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. How many kids were in cable movies this year? <laughs> I have no idea. But yeah, I think Diane Cannon's likable enough. She's, you know, she has a movie star presence, and she was a movie star. So, I guess she probably holds it together pretty well. Uh, but, like, I don't think it's her best work. But, like, she also has, like, weird comedy bits where she goes for, like, a hike through the woods... With Chris Christopherson and starts like dropping clothes along the way, and it was so like she so was, weird. She was too warm. Yeah, but it was not played in a way that made any sense. No, I, when I go for a hike, if I'm dressed in layers, uh, and I, you know, I'm like, oh, it's snowing now. Maybe I'll put on an extra sweater. I'm like, oh, now I'm too warm. I, I generally will just take it off and carry it. Maybe put it in a bag. Yeah. Uh, I won't just take it off and throw it on the ground. <laughs> it's weird. And I mean, Tony Curtis gives the greatest performance in the movie in a horrible way. Like, he saves this thing for me. I know what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. You uh, take him out of this movie, I am not left with much. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Uh, but I don't know if that's for the right reasons. Do you think Arnold and Jamie Lee talked about his working with Tony Curtis in this movie when they were shooting True Lies? You know, I never thought about it. That's a good point, of course, because Jamie Lee Curtis is... Uh, Tony Curtis's daughter with yeah, Janet Lee. Right. So I'm not sure. They must have mentioned it. Like it's at some point. How does that not come up? Yeah. How does that not come up? Exactly. You know, I met your dad. He's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, was he doing the jazz hands? Oh, you know it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good presence in front of the camera. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, you, you know, you figure it had to come up over coffee or something. Sure. Okay. So. I don't know. What are your final thoughts on Christmas in Connecticut? Uh, my final thoughts are the same thoughts that I had when I started. I'm glad I watched it. I will not be watching it again. And if you folks out there listening still haven't watched it, you didn't switch it off at the beginning and go track it down. You know, it is worth picking up and putting on. Uh, it's the kind of thing that it's it's a nice break from the fireplace channel for 90 minutes. Right. Uh, you know, sit down, maybe have a mole of wine or two. Or three. <laughs> yeah. Hell, just clean out the whole bottle. <laughs> and sit down and watch Christmas in Connecticut. Uh, but you don't have to do it every year. Should Arnold have directed again? I would have loved to have seen him direct again. That's maybe one thing that we haven't talked about. The direction in this movie, at least in terms of uh, setting up a scene and setting up a shot. I mean, it's not great. No. But it's not horrible. We've definitely seen worse. It's very, like, uh, boilerplate sitcom stuff. Yes. Like, it does not feel like he picked up a lot from Milius or James Cameron or, you know, any of these great talents he worked with, Verhoeven. Well, who knows? I mean, it's not... Uh, I mean, I would not describe it as incompetently directed. No, I agree. Um, but I wouldn't describe it as visionary. 
<laughs> but you know, it's funny because Arnold is someone who I think has really benefited throughout the course of his career by being directed very well. Like he's mm-hmm. worked with people who knew how to direct him as an actor. He does not appear to know how to direct actors, though, judging from this movie. It doesn't seem like he has the same instincts with other actors. Because a well, lot of them feel like they're really flapping in the breeze here. Well, maybe. But you got to give the guy a break. It is his first... Second credit. He did Tales from the Crypt first. I, I guess that's true. Um, but a very early credit... You know how these TV productions are, is uh, you don't get a lot of time. I mean, at this point, like you say, he's... He's maybe a little bit more used to working on gigantic productions with huge A-list directors where there's just money being thrown around. Yeah. And you do a shot, and you you do that shot over and over and over again. You do 50 takes just to make sure that you get one that's right. And I, I don't know. I mean, you worked in TV. You're familiar with how TV production is. Is you You come in, you do the take. You know, maybe you do one or two more, and then, yeah. great, that's a wrap. Hopefully the mic's not in the scene. Let's move on to the next thing. Right, yeah. There's yeah. just not the same budget that True. there is for movies. So is this Arnold's Piranha 2? Like, kind of that wonky first attempt, except in this case we never got to see what could have been with the next project. I would have loved to have seen at least one more. I would have loved to have seen a Schwarzenegger-directed project. that had Like a, mo- a motion picture that actually was in theaters. A little bit more money. Yeah. Um... You know, I won't say better actors, but, you know, maybe someone who's not Chris Christopherson, uh, who's more of a musician than an actor. What about just a one-man project starring Tony Curtis? Uh, <laughs> no, I definitely don't want to see that. <laughs> Did you ever see the movie Buried with Ryan Reynolds? Yes. Where he's in a casket. What about that with Tony Curtis? <laughs> How did I get in this casket? I've got to get out. <laughs> I, th- I don't think he didn't have enough room for his hands. <laughs> Help! Save me! Save me! <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, what, what about you? Would you like to see another another Schwarzenegger directed uh, movie? Yeah, I really would have because the thing is, we're really beating up on this movie because it's really not good. But I mean, we also don't. I I feel, and I've seen the Tales from the Crypt episode. I don't know if you have. I haven't. No. Okay, so I have seen it, but like, I feel like despite having now watched his two directorial efforts. I have zero understanding of who Arnold Schwarzenegger is as a director. Mm-hmm. Like, I just, I could not, if someone were to sit me down and be like, can you just write in a handful of sentences, you know, what does Arnold Schwarzenegger bring to a movie as a director? I have no idea. Because I just don't, like, you don't get any sense of what tone he likes or what sort of direction he likes or even what kind of stories he likes. You just kind of have these two, you know, I don't even, like... Boilerplate uh, stuff. Boilerplate, right? just kind of pay and play type projects that, you know, I'm sure he learned some interesting things technically behind the camera, but I don't know that we get any sort of insight into Schwarzenegger the artist, which is frustrating because I would like a a broader perspective on the man, the myth, the legend. But the fact he doesn't even mention anything to do with directing in his autobiography is very telling. Yeah, it leads me to believe that we may not get that late Schwarzenegger directorial masterpiece that we're waiting for. Maybe we will now, though. Now that, you know, the, maybe the roles are a little sparser. He's not having the money thrown at him as much. Maybe we will see the Arnold-directed, like, independent film on Netflix or something. You never know. I mean, I'll keep my fingers crossed. Sure. I think it'd be interesting to see. For sure. Okay, yeah, like, my final take is, like, this movie is just almost wall-to-wall non-sequiturs. <laughs> and <laughs> in that regard, I enjoyed it mightily. But, I mean... if I, 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 I enjoyed it almost as much as a banana. 
So, sorry, that was that was my non sequitur for Arnie Geddon. <laughs> well, you know what they say: time flies like an arrow, fruit flies like a banana. Oh man, jeez! <laughs> you should write the third version of Christmas in Connecticut with, with zingers like that. That's right. Yeah, so I mean, I would recommend that anyone who's interested in Arnold watch it. It's not painful to sit through. I would say, do not watch. See Arnold run. Um, you know the the Jane Mansfield story. Eh, if you want to see some early Arnold work, why not? But I would say this one will at least give you something to remember. Like, I don't remember a lot from those two movies, except for the James Cameron scene and C. Arnold Run. But I will remember a number of sequences from this bizarre motion picture. Yeah, and like we said earlier, a couple of eggnogs aren't going to hurt you. That's right. And you know what? If you're still in the holiday spirit, track down the 1945 original. It's a lot of fun. Okay, so that wraps us up. For Christmas in Connecticut, 1992. Uh, well, thank you, Cam, for the worst outro we've ever had. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> now, Tony, what are we doing next time in 2020? Well, we're going to move from Arnold's Christmas movie, or I guess other Christmas movie that's not Jingle All the Way, to Arnold's New Year's movie, <laughs> which is End of Days. Right. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. This is, of course, Arnold's... Uh, kind of late mid-career turn towards almost a gothic horror film. Right. Uh, I'm really looking forward to watching this one again. How about yeah. you? Yeah, same. It's been a while for me, and uh, I remember at the time being frustrated that it didn't kind of hit the beats of your expected Arnold movies. Now I'm more interested in re-watching it for that reason. I want to see how it is a little bit different than the movies that were coming out around that era. Yeah, I mean, and how can you go wrong with Arnold Schwarzenegger as a hard-boiled cop uh, going up against Satan, played by Gabriel Byrne. I mean, it seems like it's just made to make money, but... Well, we'll see about that part. <laughs> but we'll see, yeah. Okay, you can, of course, leave reviews for us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also contact us at arnigenpod at gmail.com or send us any tweets at arnigenpod. Tony, how do they hold you? You can find me, Tony G, that's Tony, like the name, G, like the letter, at arnigen.com. And of course, if you are unhappy with any of your streaming services or you just want to change, feel free to download us direct from the source at www.arnigan.com. And you can, of course, reach me on Twitter at Cam V as in Very Merry Christmas to all of you, Smith. And of course, we here at Arnie Geddon wish all of you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. That's right. And of course, we'll be back in January with End of Days. friends would laugh if they knew that it's true. I'm cooking for two. Let's go to the kitchen. I've got something appetizing and new. Here's a clue. I'm cooking for two.